the Buddha asked at one time seemingly might be a rhetorical question how are we going to untangle the tangle um, the tangle is us that he's talking about the tangle is the mess we've got ourselves into not through any malicious intent as I was trying to indicate last night but simply out of lack of awareness out of fundamental delusory condition we have habituated ourselves we have become almost concretized in our habits. And here's just a little passage that I want to read to you um, that comes from one of the Nikayas, one of the basic Pali texts. And the Buddha says, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into a habit and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. I think that's a very neat summary of the problem, um, particularly the first part of it, the first three lines, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, and the de- deed develops into a habit. In other words, the habit is what we're familiar with. That's what we know, it's what we're habituated towards. Um, the German poet Rilke had a wonderful phrase where he said it was a habit that moved in and didn't leave, which I think is the way it is with most of us. We've developed these habits and they become intrinsically almost part of us, the way that we see ourselves. Um, so much so, and I think it's a real litmus test of how much we see them as ourselves, because some, when somebody criticises them, or somebody points one out to you, you tend to get rather upset about it, as you probably noticed. You've got that habit, oh I haven't, that's just the way I am. <laughs> Something of that sort will usually occur showing in a sense how much we consider these to be fundamental traits, parts of our, of our nature that are almost irremovable, ir- irremovable and unchangeable. Now obviously that's not what the Buddha is talking about, it's not what Buddhism in general talks about, because it talks about the path of transformation. A path of transforming ourselves from deeds and words and habits which would become so fossilised and so sedimented that in our actions there is very little freedom. I often joke again about this and so they're saying that really in this habitual condition <coughs> we're almost like Pavlov's dog. Because press the right button and there we will be salivating <laughs> for something. Yeah. <coughs> press the right button actually and we will become irritated about something. Anger will arise automatically. It's not, I think I will become angry. Anger just happens. It comes up, it arises immediately. Irritation arises immediately. There's very little cognitive process going on in that condition at all. Now the opposite could be the case, that love could arise immediately. The Dalai Lama actually uh, very humorously once remarked it was actually when he was being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He said awarding a, a, a Dalai Lama a Nobel Peace Prize was a bit like awarding, I don't know, a, a sort of art award to, na- to nature in general. <laughs> you know, because in other words, the very nature of a Dalai Lama is compassion and peace and love and kindness. And so what we're trying to affect is a movement away from these conditioned states these ways of behaving that in a sense just arise automatically arising and arising and arising and arising now I joked about it last night saying kind of born again and again and again and again because we find ourselves habitually born into those same states again and again and again it's how to break it it's the breaking of the chain that becomes important now what we've been doing over the day in terms of the meditational practices that we've engaged in are simple ways through kindness of trying to break the chain. Not trying to repress thought, not trying to run away from it, not trying to somehow get rid of it, but to see thought and to come back to the object and hear the object happen to be ones that surround love and kindness and compassion. There's nothing wrong with those thoughts, actually. 
most of those thoughts are going on. The irritation that arises, the anger arises. What's wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. It's just that we invest them with too much power. We hold on to them. We have fly paper minds where the thought comes in and it sticks. And it goes round and round. And that's the stuff you wake up at night with. And things going round and round and round. We invest the thought with too much power. It has power over us. We have no way of relinquishing it when we invest it with that power. So all we're trying to do is break the chain of habituation, the chain of dependency that we have, of being dependent on these ways of being for understanding the world. I could have entitled this weekend Understanding the World for Love and Compassion. It's a way of knowing the world. It doesn't matter which way we're talking about. We're talking about viewing the world in a completely non-habituated way in a way where openness and freedom exist as opposed to closure and determinacy. You can see this, we can see this in ourselves, we can see it quite fundamentally that there's a degree of closure and determinacy. Not totally, because otherwise change wouldn't be possible and we'd be wasting our time sitting here. But we see this fundamental closure and determinacy in that we know the kinds of things which will wind us up. And if we know another person really well, we know the sorts of things that will wind them up. We often play on it as well. We'll do it deliberately. Uh, yeah, got you going. <laughs> you know, it's, that sort of thing is what we're in a sense seeking to relinquish. We're seeking to relinquish by letting go. The phrase that comes up again and again and again. And I said last night I would return to the theme of renunciation. And I talked a little bit about renunciation in a way last night. But really the fundamental condition of renunciation, this very, very un-PC world in our modern world of giving up something, its fundamental meaning within most of the Buddhist traditions, particularly within the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism, the fundamental meaning of this term is giving up, being habituated, not just giving away your possessions. Giving away possessions is only one side of it. And actually, they might, you might not actually even be attached to them anyway. That's all. There's a wonderful story in the Tibetan tradition of a, of a man who's very rich and very wealthy, and he decides to become a monk, and he gives away all of his possessions, absolutely everything he's got. Dons the robe, collects his begging bowl in the corner. But one day, he comes back, from um, receiving some teachings and find out somebody has stolen his begging bowl and he gets really annoyed about it. <laughs> you know, in other words, you know, it can come down to very small things but actually what we're really talking about is the habituation that we don't actually want to let go of our repetitive thought patterns because that's who we think we are. We invest in a lot of power because that's who we think we are. In other words, it's related to our ideas of self and identity. And one of the basic teachings of Buddhism, of course, is that self is not a thing. It's not an unchanging phenomena. That self is not non-existent, but it doesn't exist in the way that we think it does. The self is a changing phenomena. It will change, and it will change over your lifetime, and it will continue to change up until your death. Certain traits will remain the same, but they will not remain identical. Even they will transmute and transmogrify and become something different. Even those deeply ingrained habits. Habits are really what I would call dispositions, propensities to behave and think in certain ways. Classically, in the traditions, they are formulated in terms of what's called sankharas or sanskaras. In other words, these are formations which have been brought together over a lifetime, over many lifetimes, as one takes a traditional view. The sanskaras are what we believe are us, but there are a bunch of dispositions which change. Some of them will remain not in identical conditions, but in similar types of conditions, giving rise to similar forms of behaviour, giving rise, in fact, to similar forms of dukkha, giving rise to similar forms of unsatisfactoriness. And remember, that chain of unsatisfactoriness is the problem. That's the problem we're trying to deal with. The world 
that we see is the world which is created by basically our unhappy mind. Our unhappy mind, in other words, creates a certain type of world. Not to say, of course, and not to deny that things take place in the world which are horrific and awful. There's no denial of that whatsoever. But the world is as it is. We can't necessarily change every facet of the world. The Buddha never claimed to be able to do that at all. What he did say, of course, was that we can transform our own minds. We can change, again, our habituated reactions to certain things. Instead of being violently angry about something, irritated, aggressive, violent, we can learn to hold it in a more kindly fashion. We can, you know, respond with love rather than aggression. It's a movement away, actually, from one of the fundamental retributive facets of a lot of civilizations, which is the kind of eye-for-eye dogma. The eye-for-eye only ends up from blindness, that's all. And that's the condition that, in a sense, we're in anyway. We're in a blind condition. The way of describing love and kindness and compassion is an eye which looks at the world in a different way. An eye that is open, is seeing. Now in traditions, in the traditions, then this is usually coupled with prana or insight, understanding. Not wisdom, I don't actually like the word wisdom at all. But it's coupled with insight. Now the claims have always been that one has to develop that insight and then we will develop compassion. Going back to the early text, what I see is a movement within the early text of the Buddha claiming that in developing compassion, one can develop insight at the same time. If one looks with that eye towards the world, with the eye of kindness, the eye of compassion, then insight will automatically arise. If not an either or, one doesn't have to perceive the other. That offers out many possibilities for us all in terms of practice, in terms of development. There are many ways that we can develop the traditional Brahmavahara for sublime abiding to become a matrix for awakening, for liberation. For those who are not familiar with them, of course, we have the traditional two, which I've talked about, loving-kindness, compassion, but then sympathetic joy and equanimity, and finally. All of those developed can lead to the kind of awakening that the Buddha is talking about. And what is the content of that awakening that the Buddha really is indicating? The content of awakening is really, literally, within the word itself, is waking up waking up to the way things are, waking up to the fact that we can't control the world. The only thing we can control is our own mind. The world will throw its slings and arrows of outrageous fortune at you continuously. Uh, And there's not one jot often we can do about it. Most of the situations that we find ourselves in are entirely outside of our control. I joked about it last night, even little things, you know, that change. But the big things change, the world scene changes, our societies change. Nothing remains the same. That's one of the fundamental conditions and one of the fundamental truths that we all have to, in a sense, try to take on board and embody in our understanding, in the embodiment of our moving through this world. Without it, we're constantly going to be frustrated. We're constantly going to find ourselves in situations where dukkha is going to arise. It's going to constantly give rise to irritation, constantly give rise to anger. That is the way, out of our delusive condition, we respond. In a sense, it's the only way we know how to respond, because it's conditioned. We've learned it over a long period of time. It might even go back in terms of our genetic history, in terms of survival. Yeah, but what gets passed down in terms of survival might no longer have any efficacy in kind of civilizations in which we live now at all. 
In fact, it might be positively detrimental to our health. And that's what I'm suggesting, actually, is that that way of being in the world, which is exhibiting, exhibits itself through fundamental aggressiveness, irritation, just that dull ache of things not being right and not being the way I want them, leads to a generally unhappy condition that we find ourselves in. A condition, if you like, very simply, of unhappy-mindedness as a fundamental condition. Now that can go everywhere from that just underlying sort of warp and woof of our experience to full-blown depression, which most people in our society suffer from, from at some time or another. These are manifestations of this underlying disease that we have. This disease with the way things actually are. Now the Buddha says, of course, that the dukkha that we experience, the dukkha that comes to us, isn't just about things like physical pain. Physical pain can be dukkha, but it doesn't have to be dukkha. Mental anguish doesn't have to be dukkha. The things of the world do not have to be dukkha. Dukkha is, if you like, a mental component, the mental additive that we bring to our experience. Experience is as it is and we add on to it, I don't like it. That's what we add, that's our additive. I don't want it. So the fundamental condition becomes one of aversion, of wanting to move away from, not liking. Um, I always think there's, there's, a, there's a, an ethical theory in Western philosophy called the boo-hurrah theory which is basically, it's good if it's ethical, because you go, hooray! <laughs> and if it's bad, you go, boo! <laughs> I don't like it. And I think that's almost the way that most of us behave in life. You know, it's, if it's pleasurable and nice, then it's good. That's equated with being the good. Hence the obsession in our societies with the pleasurable, with pursuing pleasure. That addictive compulsion to gain pleasure. Because pleasure in itself, and there is nothing wrong with it, I might add at this point, there is nothing wrong with pleasure, as long as you know that pleasure arises and it passes away. The attempt to stabilise it, the attempt to hold on to it, in other words, will lead to nothing again but anguish, because it will not remain the same. Even, and this comes back to the fundamental conditions, even human relationships will not remain the same. Even, you know, thinking at a very minute level, kind of in the, our ordinary experience, even that most pleasurable object you've had or that piece of music, the experience of it will not remain the same. It will not give the same amount of pleasure as it did in the past. Again, quoting the poet Rilke, the condition that we find ourselves in, therefore, is one of forever letting go, forever taking leave of things except unfortunately we don't. We try to hold on. We try to stabilise. When we can't stabilise, we get irritated, we get angry. We get frustrated. Even that is a fundamental condition, a state of frustration. And I think I've described described this many times in this room before, but the most basic way I ever heard, and probably the most graphic way I ever heard Dukkha explained to me, was once my early training, going back into the 70s, where one of the Dalai Lama's teachers described Dukkha. He said, Dukkha wasn't like being stabbed in the back. It wasn't kind of sharp pain. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. <laughs> you know, in other words, it doesn't start off very painful, but the more and more you do it, the more and more painful it becomes. Again, that's our condition. It's cyclical. I mean, it's wonderfully graphic. You can do that and rub your arm against a brick wall. You know, you're moving your arm around. Again, the circularity, the circularity of, the, of, of sangsaric experience, to go round in circles. It's how to break that circle. That's the awakening process. How to get into it. To sever our obsession, our attachment to compulsively destructive behaviour. The basic root of this, of course, the Buddha diagnoses initially, is that we're caught in the compulsion 
of desire or craving. That's what we are caught in the compulsion of. The first is very easy to see. It's kind of very graphically illustrated in our societies. The compulsion for sensual delight, for sensual pleasure. We have lots of goodies in the West which will create sensual pleasure. Most people have sufficient amount of income to indulge there, whatever their goodie happens to be. So that's a very obvious one, the desire to gain sensual pleasure. But there's also the desire or the craving to want to continue in some way or another. In other words, not taking on board the fundamental aspect of impermanence, which of course is death. Uh, all of us will die. And rather than looked upon negatively in Buddhist thought and practice, death is seen as that which gives meaning to life. It's that which actually injects the meaning into what we do now. Because if we had endless time, why would we do anything? Why would we choose one thing over another? It's because we have to make choices that meaning is generated in our life. And so death is that which generates that meaning. However, of course, something that we don't want to take on board is the thought of our non-existence. Because even though Buddhism talks in its traditions about rebirth, it's not me as a little package that's going to be reborn. It's something which is dependent on me. And perhaps when I open this up for questions, if anybody wants to question me about that, I can go into it a bit further. But it's definitely not me, not a little package with John's stamps on it, which goes from birth to birth. Yeah, it's a something which is dependent on me, on what I do in this lifetime that goes on. So death, in a way, in terms of our experience, me, as I am at this moment, is an end. And it's something that we reject, we can't learn to love, we can't learn to embrace death as an experience because it appears to be the finality, the end, the absurdity, to the end of the absurdity of life sometimes. However, what is there within our thoughts, even if you've been coming to Buddhist teachings for years and years and years and years, you know, and you hear the teaching, all things that are compounded must disintegrate, must fall apart. Even the Buddha is having to assure his disciples at the end, when they're all complaining that he's dying, he has to assure them, haven't I told you often enough that all compounded things die? <laughs> all compounded things disintegrate. And they're saying, please don't leave us! <laughs> and things like this to him. And he's just pointing out that they really haven't fundamentally understood, because in a way that's what happens in terms of our own experience. It's like we hear the teaching, everything is going to die, everything is impermanent, and the little voice goes, not me. <laughs> and that's in a sense, that desire to continue in some way. Now even if we do take it on board, there might be a desire to perpetuate yourself in some way. And they actually call this the desire to become, the desire to continue. And that's fundamental. I always joke about this and say, this is you on a good day. <laughs> the desire to continue in some form. And then there's a bad day, which is a desire not to continue at all. And this can manifest itself obviously very seriously in the suicidal impulses, when everything becomes too much. But it can be, just in one's ordinary experience, a desire not to be today. I just don't want to get out of bed, I just can't want to be bothered. In a kind of really depressive state. Yeah. Now, we wax and wane between all of these. They're all intermingled, in a sense, in our daily processes. Yeah. That the cravings are manifesting themselves. For example, our desires, which are manifest in terms of sensual desire, for example, might be also a manifestation of our desire not to be particularly when it comes to things like alcohol abuse or drug abuse or something like that. A desire literally to get out of your head. It can be a desire to negate one's responsibility. All in all. So they're all intermingled and they're all arising and passing away in terms of our experience. And this is the fundamental, this is the really basic starting point that the Buddha diagnoses of, diagnoses of the problem. 
Because when we have this craving, when we have these desires, which are caught in, in kind of our circular behaviour, and, and in a way are the driving force behind a lot of our circular behaviour, when we have that desire, it's unquenchable. Nothing is going to satisfy it whatsoever. It has no terminal point. Let's just take the very basic form, the desire for sensual enjoyment, for sensual pleasure. And remember one fundamental thing, and I should have mentioned this before, of course, that Buddhism basically, and the Buddha states, of course, all beings, all beings, not just human beings, but obviously we're talking very much in the human world, all beings desire happiness. What we mistake, of course, is the things that are going to give us happiness. Hence the reason desire arises and manifests itself in terms of trying to gratify itself to gain happiness through sensual pleasure. Of course, pleasure will arise, but pleasure will pass away. And pleasure will arise, and pleasure will pass away. And if one is attached to that kind of pleasure-seeking, then you'll have to gain it again and again and again and again and again, and be trapped in forms of compulsive behaviour to try drastically to stabilise the experience of pleasure. But it's not happiness, because it passes away. And it passes away quite quickly, too. And it will have no terminal point, either. Even if one told oneself the little story um, that I'm sure we all have at some point, I know I certainly have, I'll own up, which is, if only I had, I would be happy. (laughs) Ever told yourself that one? In other words, you identify something that you want, you think it's going to make you happy. You, know, you get it. Happiness lasts two seconds, three seconds, five seconds, now, yeah. however much you want to put on time on it. It's very short, the period of time, until you're on to the next thing. If only I had, I would be happy. And that will continue for, the whole, for your whole lifetime. And really what the Buddha is saying is in, in groping our way through life in terms of this desire, particularly in terms of material positions, and I really do mean groping our way through life in this way, we'll amuse ourselves to death but we'll never find happiness. That's all. And we'll just head that direction and we'll take these things as they go but we will not find any lasting form of happiness. And bear in mind I do find problems that word because I, I think it can be rather and overused. But what I mean is that by the contentment and the peace and the joy that perhaps we look for in life, which appears to be absent most of the time. And we attempt to create it artificially through something external. We even invest others with the power to make us happy. That's what unfortunately what a lot of human relationships are predicated on, that somebody else is going to make me happy. Even the Buddha said, I can't give you this. Only you can do it for yourself. You're the only person who can do it for yourself. It is difficult. He never denied that. And I mentioned this last night, coming back to the theme I talked about last night. He said it was difficult. There was never a denial of that. A little quotation again I looked at this afternoon. Shantideva. This is out of the Bodhicarya Avatara, the Bodhisattva's past awakening. There is nothing that remains difficult as long as it's practiced. In other words, the difficulty is in the perception, not in the doing. If we keep on doing it, coming back to the practices we've been doing today. Now, obviously, in a day, and nearly two days of practicing, you're not going to get it. But if you do it day in, day out, with a kind of vigor behind that practice, by seeing it as being important. There's no way you're going to do it unless you see it as being important, as I was suggesting last night. There's no way you're going to want to do this. Because it will mean giving up other things. Coming back to the renunciation thing. It will mean having to let go of that which is most familiar to you. And what is most familiar to you is your dukkha. You've got to relinquish it. In a way, we're tremendously attached to samsara. 
One phrase that constantly resonates through Mahayana Buddhist texts, there in the early texts as well, but particularly again exemplified in Mahayana Buddhist texts, is actually one must have a revulsion of Sankara. Now it sounds very heavy, doesn't it? It sounds very kind of cool. <laughs> one has to have a revulsion of it. But when you look at the commentaries, what it really means is one has got to be fed up with behaving in the same way. In other words, going round in the same habitual circle. You've really got to have got tired of it. I mean, I don't just even sat there during meditative, you know, during your meditations and just look at a train of thought and go, oh no, not that again. <laughs> you know, and you can do that daily life and go, here I go again. <laughs> you know, boop, somebody press the button and then you go and they have it again. Sometimes you only realise it after the fact. That you've kind of fallen, despite your best intentions, you've fallen. What we've been doing over the day is, in a sense, as I said constantly throughout the day, is planting the seeds of intention. Planting them with ploughing furrows. Again, I'm using very agricultural metaphors here. Ploughing furrows and planting your seeds. The ploughing furrows can be likened, if you like, in more contemporary terms, to changing neural pathways in the brain. You know, so deeply habituated, we've set up ways that even our brain fires in. So you've got to change the way that the brain fires, you've got to change the way that we actually perceive. And think about the enormous leap from the change of automatically becoming irritated by something, or someone, to treating them kindly, and treating them with love and respect. That's the big difference. That's the, big, that's the real difference that we're talking about. That movement, that way of seeing a person in a different way, even if they're doing something to you which is unpleasant. To move away from kind of eye for an eye understanding, the retributive understanding, okay, they've been nasty to me, I'll get back at them and be nasty to them. In other words, just compounding the misery, in other words. In the opening part of Zamahada, um, the most quoted text, probably, and probably the most translated text in the whole Buddhist world, it's a little set of aphorisms of the Buddha, the opening stanza of the Dhammapada states, you know, mind is the forerunner of all things. And I'm paraphrasing here rather than directly quoting, but with basically an unhappy mind, evil will follow you. It says, just as the foot of the ox will follow the cart, or the cart will follow the ox, I should say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you understand. <laughs> Metaphors get confused at this time of the day. <laughs> but anyway, the Buddha is saying that it will follow automatically. So treat, behave with a kindly mind, with a mind imbued with love, then good things will follow you. Mm-hmm. you know, just as the shadow will follow you. So it's all in the transformation of mind. But you've got to, and I keep coming back to this, and I think this is a really important theme, is to developing love, you've got to give up its opposite. If you want to develop compassion, you've got to want to give up the opposite of aversion. Because everything stems from aversion of not wanting, not liking. In Buddhist psychological terms, we really only almost, in a sense, although there is a third category, possess two really strong poles, which is we either like it or we dislike it. That's our forms of behaviour. We run towards that which we like, and we'll cross the road to avoid that which we dislike, um, in our experience. Then there's a kind of mutual category in the middle, which is of indifference. Um, We like this, we dislike this and we're hugely indifferent to everything else. And so in other words, all of our experience has been polarised. It's been, it's been taken and created into a form of dualism. And there's another just manifestation of dualism that we have here. A separation. Those I like, those I dislike. We're talking about the realm of human discourse and intercourse here. So the movement is away from that. The movement is a movement towards equanimity. Let me say something a little bit about the two words. Well, the word. It has two manifestations. One in Sanskrit and one in Pali. 
the word metta, which is the Pali term or Maitri in Sanskrit, the word metta has two connotations really. The first is to befriend. It means friendliness. That's the first connotation of it. The second connotation is kindliness as well. But a kindliness that's described in a text that falls like rain indiscriminately on everything and everyone. That's the movement again we're trying to affect in some of the practices. We haven't quite got there yet. We've had the neutral category which we looked at earlier on in the last session. But it's this movement towards equalisation and the movement away from the polarised dimensions of our behaviour, which obviously originate in our mental state. Now what is the block to our mental state is something, again, I'm going to use the original language because actually the literal translations of these in the original languages are actually very graphic. And this is the term, the, the mental stuff that's going on is actually termed Kalesa or Kalesha, which is usually translated fairly well, I wouldn't say innocuously, but it's translated usually as defilement, defilement of mind. Literally, the word Kalesha or Kalesa means torment of mind. <laughs> These are what tormentors. Um, there's actually uh, another connotation that's used in one of Shantideva's texts where you know, he's talking about anger. And he does some wordplay, and I can't do it in English, but he does some wordplay because there's a similarity between the word anger and the word for a boil. <laughs> Literally, the body is swollen with anger. <laughs> Everything is swollen. It's a torment, and it's painful, extremely painful even to touch. And so he plays on these ideas. And that's what we're attempting to change, to move away from. Our torments of mind, our classic dispositions, our ways of normally behaving. Now, lest this sound all too idealistic, and I don't want it to, one has to take it a step at a time. Some days you'll succeed, and some days you'll fall. In meditation experience, and this is why we do the meditation, you get a chance to test that out. Because you'll be there, doing whatever the meditation is, trying to develop kindness perhaps towards yourself or towards another, be it somebody you like or somebody neutral, or where we're going, somebody you dislike. And then you'll just stop. And then you'll get impatient. And then you'll get irritated. Observe it. See it. No problem. Don't have to worry about it. But bring yourself back. The moment you notice it, after having acknowledged, bring yourself back. And this is what I mean by the simple letting go. It's not a letting go that's brutal and kind of dragging yourself back. It's a kindly movement. It's a seeing, acknowledging, and then just coming back to a more positive orientation. And that's what we're constantly having to do in life. Because we will, no doubt, get caught up. Because the levels of our conditioning are so deep that we'll, to use kind of Christian terminology, we'll keep falling. We'll keep falling. And there's no doubt about that. Yet, each moment then becomes a moment of opportunity, the next moment, for coming back and being with that perhaps more kindly responsiveness, that more compassionate responsiveness, until perhaps it becomes you. In some forms of certain Buddhism, they use very powerful techniques in something called Tantra. I only want to mention this very briefly because in a sense this is what we're trying to do albeit not through this type of technique. They will use visualisations. They will externalise a figure um, such as Tara who represents what we're trying to develop here kindness and love. They will externalise her, visualise her perfectly see her almost as an external goddess. Then they will visualise themselves as that goddess taking on the qualities of that particular figure. In other words, trying to affect a transformation from what they call conventional ego, conventional self, to the ego 
or the self of the visualised figure thereby in a sense knocking out the conventional self eventually over a long period of time a lot of meditative work over that period of time in a much more gentle way in a far less dangerous way actually that's effectively what we're trying to do we're trying to remove the conventional self which dominates every facet of our behaviour including even our gestures which become thoughtless manifestations of our unawareness of our again our aversion often and there's something in, I'm sure you're aware of in, in Buddhist iconography which is called mudra which is gestures of awakening and they are gestures which actually embody the virtues that Buddhism talks about it embodies gestures of wisdom and embodies gestures of compassion so really what that's saying and what I'm trying to say is that eventually when these virtues of compassion and kindness they will become embodied. They will become, in a sense, us. They'll not be something in a way that we're training ourselves into at the moment, but they will become us, where there's no separation between compassion and kindness and oneself. In fact, there will be no other form of behaviour that can be possible. That is the goal, and I'm not saying that because it's an enormous mountain to climb, but that is what we're aiming towards. We can do it in small increments, gradually, 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 by training ourselves. And it comes down to the training that we engage in and the regularity of it. If we really want to affect that change, if we want to affect the change from a, a dukkha-led life, and that we know, and we see this kind of pattern that often people will return to that which they know even when they know that it causes them pain because it's what they are habituated towards almost despite the fact that it causes pain to take it away will create what I would call spiritual withdrawal symptoms or syndrome So we've got to see that as being also part of the problems that we have, that we will keep coming back because that is what we know. But we also have to keep looking at that which we want to move towards. In doing that, and these kind of final words, because I want to open it up for a little bit of questioning, if there is any questions. (laughs) Um, In doing that, we open up life rather than something which is, I don't know, detached and cold and really something I've indicated to you even if only implicitly is that we're moving away from the attachment that goes with craving or the attachment that comes almost hot foot on the heels of craving something Um, the opposite of it is not a cold detachment a movement whereas I think it's one of the characters in, in James Joyce says he looked at life as a feast in which he didn't participate. Yeah. We're not doing that. We're not making that movement. We're not moving to the sidelines of life and looking in in a detached manner. Unfortunately, the logic of our language generally only works in these oppositions, don't they? Attachment equals detachment is you know, the opposite to it. In Buddhism, in Buddhist thought, really, the opposite to attachment is genuine engagement with life. The movement into the heart of life with the eye of compassion and with the eye of kindness and with the eye of wisdom or with the eye of insight and understanding about the way it is. That's the movement, to move right into the centre of life, to open it up, to make it more colourful. Final word, and again it's referring to the Buddhist tantras, which um, is something we've lost, and I always try to point this out, it's something we've tended to lose over our growth as adults is, is a genuine wondrousness at the way things are at the world you know, the world has become almost boring and familiar in its aggression and its violence and sort of things and there's a kind of, I don't know, something I find personally um, in the West that's developed is a kind of cynicism that's developed, a bored cynicism about the way things are well, there's a little phrase that starts off every tantra, and it's a little Sanskrit phrase, um, and it goes M-R-O in Sanskrit. It starts off every tantra, basically. 
and it has a really kind of technical translation it means wow (laughs) (laughs) trying to indicate actually that should be our state of of looking at life a kind of wowness that we've lost because we've moved we're actually in this habituated behaviour that I started off talking about at the opening of this talk in that habituated behaviour we've lost it kind of lost life. We've got a lot of goods, a lot of acquisitions, and we even acquire people too. We acquire knowledge, we acquire all sorts of things. But what we've lost is the fundamental impetus of life. The compassion and the love that we attempt to develop in practices such as we've done today and we'll continue to do some tomorrow are there to bring us back into genuine engagement with it, to bring back a wow, to look at the world, not just other human beings, but to look at the world with love, to look at it with kindness, to look at it with a degree of compassion, to bring us back into, as I say, an engagement with it, rather than a simple detachment. Actually, it's our normal condition that we're detached not in some idealised form of Buddhism where one stands apart from it. Okay, I'll finish there. Here and this the homily. I don't know. I want to open it up for questions. We've got about 15 minutes or so. If we, if we have enough questions, we can even go on a little bit longer than that. If there are thoughts or questions or comments that people want to make about the practices or about what's been said. We can even talk about the weather. Well, the version, uh, version will arise automatically. I mean, that's the whole point about it. I mean, a version, in a sense, is going back to the feeling of dislike or something. I mean, in a way, I don't know how well you know the 12 links of dependent origination, but in 12 links of dependent origination, there's contact feeling, which is Vedana, which is like, dislike, neither like nor dislike, and that will then give rise to craving afterwards. That is automatic. We, in a sense, we can't do anything about it, but it's the acting on aversion that becomes a problem. Now, for example, if I dislike, um, as an example, but something like a blood sport, and thereby attack the people that were doing it, you know, that is something that can be controlled. That can something we can do something about. The fundamental aversion might be something that. Uh, inspires us to ethically change it if we think it's an ethically wrong pursuit, which of course in Buddhism they would say it's an ethically wrong pursuit. Then you might be engaged in the changing, but you're not going engaging of changing it out of hatred. You're engaging and want to change it out of a moral, ethical impetus that comes about. That doesn't lead to hatred of the people that is engaged in it. You can dislike and feel aversion for the outcome for what they engage in, but you don't have to feel hatred for the people that engage in it. Because, and this has come from partly where we're moving tomorrow, because those people in a sense are like us. They are deluded, they are full of aversion, and they're greedy. They are like us. It's just that their aversion, their hatred, or you know, their, their aversion, hatred, and their delusion, and their greediness probably manifest very differently in this case. So we're coming back to a fundamental condition in the sense that we all share, although it manifests in different ways. And instead of engendering hatred for those people, as it would, you know, um, and in fact I'll say something about this in a second, and we can often feel hatred towards our own kind of 
sides that we don't like. You know, the aspects of our personality, of our character we dislike. When we feel that towards ourselves, it's so easy to put it onto others as well, and to really hate those people too. What I'm suggesting is the movement really comes about developing compassion for oneself or kindness towards oneself, then we can extend it towards the others, even if we don't like what they're engaging in. That doesn't mean you can't stop and try to change what they're engaging in. And that becomes the kind of movement, such as lobbying and all the sorts of things that we can do to do that. But the hatred for the people who are engaging in it will only give rise to possible violence and aggression and all sorts of things. Certainly not a good feeling, anyway. It becomes a very unwholesome, very destructive disposition. And perhaps I'll just say something about that, because I talked about self-hatred there, and I think, actually, that's quite a fundamental condition for a lot of people um, in the West. I mean, we can only examine it in terms of our own experience, but there are often aspects of ourselves that we deny and really do not like and try to run away from, and it really manifests as a kind of self-flagellation about it. And when that is happening, when there is that kind of self-flagellatory attitude, and we try to manifest generosity without having developed some kind of generosity towards ourselves, um, it becomes martyrdom. When we try to develop compassion in this way, or morality, for example, it becomes a kind of rigid moralism. In other words, it doesn't have a softness to it. It doesn't have a malleability to it. Um, it's rigid. It's coming out of a wrong spot. It's coming out of a spot of self-hatred. And I think that's really... I mean, I don't know. It's a response. It's not an answer. I don't pretend to answer the questions. I, I try to respond to them. Because <laughs> they're obviously far more complex than simple answers. But, you know, that's the response, I think, that overall within Buddhism would be there. When you meet hatred or something which is hateful, you respond with kindness and perhaps through kindness. And remember also as well, perhaps again I should say this, that compassion itself doesn't have to be woolly and all fuzzy. Compassion can actually, and and sort of sloppy, compassion can be very dynamic. It can be actually about getting the thing done. Getting, for example, the laws changed that surround blood sports. That can be compassion too. In a Buddhist sense, I mean, in a traditional Buddhist sense, that would be compassion for the animals, obviously suffering, that would be compassion for the people perpetrating the suffering, too, because of the karma that they are accumulating for themselves in engaging in those kinds of sports as well. And so compassion has its dynamic aspects, it has its soft side, it has its more gentle side, the side often which is emphasised, and probably I have done this weekend as well so far. But it also has this dynamic side. In Tibetan Buddhism, again, again, because they use graphic illustrations in the iconography, I always remember coming across it first, and I said, when I was first engaged in Tibetan Buddhism in the early 70s, and looking at this kind of fire-breathing monster, you know, severed heads, flames all around, with a skull cup full of blood, and I said to the teacher I was with, who's that? And he said, oh, that's compassion. (laughs) He said, but it's not a compassion that tolerates fools. (laughs) (laughs) so it has its different aspects it has its shades and nuances and I think we tend to forget that as well in just thinking of compassion as being this monolithic kind of softness compassion often is about getting things done getting things changed the most obvious illustration I've given you so many times is shouting at a child when it's going to hurt itself that's not done out of hatred you know, it's done out of compassion. Yet it takes a very almost seemingly angry form in that instance. So beware of seeing, as kind of general comment, beware of seeing compassion as one thing, because it manifests in many forms. What might be perceived as anger might actually be compassion, for example, because that is the motivation and intention behind it. Recently, I've been getting into empathy and wondering why I get angry at specific people or things that happen, and looking back into myself, that's why that happens. 
I mean, I mean, I can only support what you're saying. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about. You don't, I mean, when you look at the atrocities in the world that go on, you're not going to say, oh, yes, they're perfectly all right, they're fine. You're not saying that at all. But you don't have to hate the perpetrators. That's very difficult not to, isn't it? Very difficult because almost we're habituated immediately to want to desire retribution. In fact, I mean, a kind of judicial system is almost built on it. The desire for retribution. Um, I mean, I talked about you know, kind of reform and everything else, but it's actually still mainly retributive justice that's involved. In, in, in looking at that, it's to see the people suffering who are perpetrating that sort of thing, who are perpetrating the kinds of things that are going on, because the degree of torment that they must be going through is very deep, very deep. And let us, let, let we forget, of course, in certain circumstances, wars can perpetrate horror. Yeah. It's very easy for that to happen. I don't mean, you know, just individual horrors that we can perpetrate, really acts of supreme nastiness that we can engage in. And, but I think, coming back to your original comment, really, I mean, about the, the kind of hatred that we can harbour towards institutions and towards people and things like that. It doesn't hurt them, it only hurts us. As you say, I, th- I love your illustration, a kind of wound, you know, a knife in the heart for yourself, because that's what you're doing. You're knifing yourself. You know. And again, it becomes so habituated, it becomes so conditioned to that form of behaviour. Yeah. In fact, we can become almost an extremist about kind of hating the world and the way the world is. Yeah, it's like resisting continuously what is going on. This is almost relaxing a little bit more into the situation as one finds it. Not necessarily wanting to say, this is perfectly okay, because it's not. Well, it isn't perfectly okay. But there are many much more wholesome ways of dealing with it than through hatred. And that's what we're trying to sense change. We're trying to move from unwholesome ways of behaving, which wound using your word, wound ourselves and often wound others because we do spread it around to more wholesome forms where we can, you know, it's more like the healing salve that we can use to heal the wounds that we've created for ourselves. So I think that's again the kind of movement we're trying to affect. Not easy. (laughs) I do keep saying this, it's not easy. So I don't want to, to kind of go away thinking it's all going to be really, really easy to do this. Um, people quite often have a vision to a vision. And you say, obviously, you, and you go to a pop and you can't control that mm. anger from your against people. And I wonder if you thought that it was better to, to show compassion towards yourself in allowing that, that vision towards them rather than creating a vision to your vision, or if it's better to think about things in terms of not, not allowing yourself to really think as a problem within yourself and, and trying to, to do something to, to cultivate compassion towards the people I think it's a process I mean the, the ideal obviously is if one can develop some degree of compassion I mean it's interesting you make this comment because in Shantideva again in the Buddhist Haravatara Shantideva says if the worst comes to the worst and you can't do anything about the aversion or the hatred. He actually uses the word hatred. He says, hate the hatred. <laughs> you know, he said, that's the worst possible thing. Just hate the hatred and try and do something about that. 
if you can't develop the compassion for the others. Yeah. So, but also he kind of then takes it back a stage and says, but would you really want to hate the hatred? He said it would be a bit like hating the acrid smoke that's in the sky. Because yeah. it's just a passing phenomenon. That's all it is. Yeah. So he's suggesting that you let it go after a while. Hating the hatred creates more suffering to yourself, whereas accepting that and doing yourself and allowing for that because it comes naturally without you know, instinctively. Well, I think it comes back to that, that situation that we were talking about earlier on, and I think certainly last night, or I was mentioning last night, which is acknowledge it. You've got to acknowledge it fully. I mean, if that's the way you feel at this moment in time, then you've got to acknowledge it fully. But it doesn't mean you have to remain stuck in that position. You know, if you do hate the fox hunters or whatever, acknowledge it. That's the way you feel. But you don't necessarily have to behave on that feeling. That would be stage one. You don't have to automatically behave on it. It's, again, coming back to that slight sort of remark I made last night that came from that Tibetan teacher, you know, when you're saying that, you know, when the student said to him, he said, you know, I don't feel compassion for these people. You know, just behave compassionately. In other words, let the behaviour try and give you an inkling of what it might be like to feel compassion. And apparently that's what we've been doing today. Because I'm sure, I mean, I don't know how, and we haven't gone into this, but you know, often we don't feel automatically just loving kindness for ourselves coming through these phrases that we're using. We're kind of there in our turmoil. Um, and we're reciting the phrases. And they're just laying down seeds, that's all. In other words, we're engaging in a form of behaviour that might eventually change the mental continuum. Might eventually do that. But I agree with you. The initial stage has to be acknowledgement, because you can only move forward from that place where you are. You can't idealise it. Yeah. In fact, idealisation is the very worst thing you can do. Because idealisation is the death of what is. Yeah. You kill the actual process that you're engaging in if you're looking ahead and then that becomes another source of irritation because you haven't got it <laughs> because you're actually here but I want to be there yeah. but you're actually here come on admit you're there that's really what we're doing and the only movement as I said last night can take place from that from the foundation of acceptance of who and what we are and so there's a great deal to learn in a sense about ourselves I mean obviously very strong passions like hatred um, I suspect, I don't know, I mean, I'm kind of throwing this out, just been thinking about it at the moment. Uh, I suspect not many of us have that strong a feeling, such as hatred. Most of them say they're things that we dislike. But hatred is a very, very strong emotion. We use it colloquially, don't we? Say, I hate this, and I hate that. And it's used colloquially, but it doesn't meant often in that really, really strong sense of the term. It, means, it really means, I dislike it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it needs we need to look very carefully as that you know, as, it, as it says in this quote you know, the one I quote started off with this evening watch the thought you know, so watch the thought and its way with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings but the first part of it is watch thought and its way with care in other words it's requiring us to have a degree of knowledge and attentiveness about our thought processes yeah. with the possibility that it can arise from another place yeah. rather than the place where they're automatically coming from mostly yeah. but yeah, sometimes you'll win sometimes you'll lose <laughs> and that takes place in the actually winners and losers that's not a good I mean actually it's brought to mind a quote actually the Buddha says you know in, in terms of battles and wars and that there are no winners and there are no losers everybody's a loser <laughs> everybody loses and when we think about it in those terms I think we all lose but it's, it's the developing that degree of attentiveness and, that's really, and sensitivity towards the, what is going on for us which allows for the possibility of change because it's only in full acknowledgement of what is going on, that change can occur. I can't relinquish that which I don't know about myself. You know, there's always going to be something like a you know, steam engine waiting behind us to hit us straight in the small of the back um, if I haven't turned around and looked and seen what's there. And so I'm really 
attuning myself to the what is going on. Not as an individual for each of us, okay, in terms of our continuum, really tuning ourselves. And so it's a process of sensitization. There are many ways of doing it, this is one way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.